So we're finishing up with um, the last little bit on Christian living, which which is a broad umbrella term for describing all of our entire Christian life of sanctification. And uh, a couple of broad concepts can can help to keep things in their proper perspective. Um, first of all, when we're talking about the fact that a Christian is a member of two kingdoms um, and what we mean by that that typically we refer to um, the God's right hand or the kingdom of the right hand as the church and the kingdom of the left hand as the world. And the idea of referring to the right hand kingdom and the left hand kingdom um, is the reminder that God is the one who is Lord over all of history, um, as well as Lord of the church. It's not as though he um, is ignorant of history or has no influence on history or that his influence on history is only limited to um, the influence of the church in history. But rather, um, the way the, that scripture describes it is that, you know, when Jesus says, for instance, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, what he's saying is he also has the power to, to guide history and he wants to, um, he guides history for the good of his people, his church. He restrains evil for the good of his people, his church. Um, he also provides opportunities, you know, as, because there is, there are some things that are sinful that he does not restrain, um, that he did not, um, interfere, you know, directly and, um, and stop, for instance, you know, some of the atrocities of the 20th century from happening. Um, he did work through some people to, you know, preserve some life, you know, like we've talked about, um, Schindler and, uh, Schindler's list, the movie based on actual human events. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and that you can say even in an external way that that is God, um, you know, working in history, um, even in the case of Oscar Schindler, who, to my knowledge, I don't know if he is a Christian man or not. Um, but that's rather irrelevant because, um, I'll call you back later. Um, because God still operates in the left-hand kingdom according to the law. And so when we talk about the law, we're talking about, um, external laws and rules. We're also talking about natural law. That is to say the way that God has designed this world to work. Um, we're also talking about you know, that, that God will interfere or, you know, guide the world in power, um, but he will not use the gospel. Um, and so God's governance of the world, according to the law, also is through the authorities that he has set up in the government. Um, and our understanding of the government and our, you know, our American approach to the government is, and I think it's scriptural also, is that government isn't just some amorphous concept that all of a sudden appears but that um, the, way, the way that the large catechism talks about it, um, if you read the fourth commandment part of the large catechism, that the government derives its authority from God who gave the authority first to the father, um, to the, the household. And then it is units of households that, that ideally would be the you know, constituting authorities for the government. Um, and so we talk about, you know, the kingdom of God's left hand that includes all the, uh, all the worldly governments as well as the specific governments. Um, and we can say very, very blankly and bluntly, as Paul says in Romans 13, that the governments that the authorities that exist have been established by God. Um, that being said, we also realize as members of God's right hand kingdom, the church, um, that in the church, there alone, God um, is at work in both law and gospel. That the left-hand kingdom only has the tool of the law. And, and that's kind of the way, when you're dealing with people in the left-hand kingdom, um, that's where Christians, you know, when you go to run for office or you want to speak at a school board meeting or run for school board, um, you know, that's usually more effective than trying to just speak at a school board meeting. Um, you can make an argument, but just make that on the basis of human reason of all the tools that are tools of the law. So human reason, and you make a compelling argument, you can construct a logical argument, an emotional argument, um, but you're still using tools of, of the law, tools of human reason, um, things that are available to all people. 
it's when we're talking about the kingdom of the right hand, um, the kingdom of God's church, that we get into using both law and gospel. And there, in the right-hand kingdom of God, do we see um, the way that God has chosen and the way that God prefers to work, that he, he does something that is contrary to human nature, contrary to human understanding, in that he um, declares a complete and certain forgiveness through Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Um, that is the message of the gospel. Um, and and things get mixed up. I mean, this will be our big book that we'll be looking at in book club this coming summer. Um, but things get mixed up um, in a couple of different ways. Um, most specifically in the right-hand kingdom, when we misuse or misapply law and gospel, when uh, we don't have a, a thorough enough knowledge of the circumstances, or we don't, um, don't give a, a clear confession of the truth in the right-hand kingdom or when we lay, lay, um, load somebody down with guilt and uh, the obligations of the law rather than announcing to them the forgiveness of the gospel. But things also get mixed up when those in the left-hand kingdom, um, you know, such as, you know, for instance, the apparently the new speaker of the house, I don't even know his name offhand, um, Forget it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I read the headlines every morning. Johnson. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is a revolving Johnson. door. Johnson. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I think um, I don't know his politics, and um, but I think he has a deficient understanding of his responsibility as Speaker of the House in relation to his responsibility as a Christian, where he is is merging those two. And that is a misunderstanding in both kingdoms. Where on the church side, um, I would guess just from the, the little bit that I've read about him, is that he is, um, you know, some of the something that we would call a fundamentalist. Um, usually that brings up, con, you know, images of somebody who is, you know, very strong Baptist, um, according to a certain set of beliefs. Um, but that there is a, a misuse of law and gospel in the right-hand kingdom within his own life, in that he is looking for um, worldly improvement or, you know, personal ethical improvement, um, rather, and looking for it according to the rule of the law, rather than according to God's work of sanctification through the gospel. Um, and so, you know, just looking at what he says, you can probably surmise a number of things about the church body that he is that he is aligned with, um, that they do not believe in a means of grace, um, an effective means of grace, um, that they do take scripture literally, which is which is good, um, but that they also have a an inordinate emphasis on living the Christian life in order probably probably in order to prove that your conversion experience was a real conversion experience um the little bit that i've seen on the headlines is that i would i would say he's probably a you know very conservative fundamentalist baptist of some of some stripe um but he gets things confused in the in the left-hand kingdom as well um, where his responsibility isn't to rule according to scripture he can, he can, um, or rule, you know, <laughs> enact laws or advocate for laws according to scripture. He can, you can do that purely on the basis of human reason. Your scripture can inform your human reason, but you don't want to say, well, we do this because the Bible says so. Well, let's find a, a legal, constitutionally correct way of, of, you know, making that particular <clears throat> argument. Um, so I think when we talk about Christian living, the two, two of the big things that we need to see are, first of all, that concept of the two kingdoms, the right-hand kingdom being God's kingdom of grace, uh, the church, where he is operative in both law and gospel, and then the left-hand kingdom being what we call the kingdom of power, um, where he is operative only in law and in, and in power. And that would include everything from um, God working through humans to human governments, as well as um, God using or allowing um, or sending even um, natural disasters and earthquakes and you know, controlling our, our planet. Um, the, other, the other main idea to keep in mind when we're talking about sanctified living and the Christian life is the fact that for the Christian, the glory is always hidden. Um, that, and, and the way that kind of plays out, that the glory is hidden 
that we we see our status according to God. We see our status that is, you know, what God has called us, what God has named us for the sake of his son as a you know judicial verdict that he has declared you to be not guilty. Um, and we see and we know that status only through the gospel, you know, the, the kingdom of grace, where he he tells us something that we cannot perceive by our own human intellect. Um, and so we know our status at the same time as we know our reality that daily I sin much and I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Um, that those two things are both true at the same time. That, um, and, and the main idea that links them together is the fact that God um, conceals his glory under weakness. Um, and we see that, you know, once we start to wrap our minds around that idea, that God conceals his glory under weakness, um, then we begin to see why the church always looks like it's on the verge of failure why it looks like you know the church shall stand even when steeples are falling as our as our hymn says um we see a little bit more clearly why there is such a struggle with the sinful flesh in in christians and by and large that struggle is not there for for unbelievers we see why um why God has chosen to use the gospel and he communicates that gospel message through frail um, and faulty human beings. Um, and, and in that sense, it can, he, through that, that same gospel can be rejected that God doesn't, um, God, you know, the means of grace are resistible, which is to mean that, um, you know, the gospel message isn't going to always bring somebody to faith. Um, some, but it will have an effect. Um, and so when we see and we begin to understand that God conceals his glory under weakness, um, that changes a little bit of our expectation for life, both in the kingdom of the right hand and also the kingdom of the left hand. That in the kingdom of the right hand, we see all of, you know, we see all of God's blessings given to us in the most humble ways, you know, like words or water on a baby's head or a taste of bread and wine. Um, we also see um, you know, that God conceals his, his glory under weakness. We also see that even in the world around us, there may be persecution, there will be suffering. And some of those things are just part of life in a sinful world, a world that is you know, broken by sin. Um, but part of that also is the fact that God still wants to work through even, even suffering and that sometimes he does his greatest work in suffering. Um, in whatever whatever shape or whatever form that may take on. Um, so I think those two things are, are at least helpful. Um, and then the one that we talked about the most last time, I guess would be the, the third one, is that, that for the Christian, good works are always flow from uh, faith. And for the Christian, good works are only prompted by the gospel. Um, and that they are good because of the faith, first of all. And then secondly, they are good because they are in line with the law of God. Um, but those good works um, are also guided by God's law. They, they can't be propelled by God's law, but they are guided by God's law where we don't need to, you know, we know whether something is good or not on the basis of God's law. Does it tell us that this is a correct action or not? Um, but it also gives us what, what we ought to do if we say, well, I want to do good works and, um, and what should I do? Well, we look at, you know, the doctrine of vocation. We've talked about that. Or we look at, you know, what does it mean to love, love God and love my neighbor? Or the breakdown that you've got in the, the Ten Commandments, which is, you know, about the best um, summary of God's moral law. Um, that in all those things, I guess, stitching them together, that the kingdom of the right hand, you know, the church uses both law and gospel. The kingdom of the left hand, the kingdom of power, um, only uses law. Um, that the Christian knows that, knows by faith that God wants to encourage godly living and that God wants to bless his people. But that blessing is covered in weakness and humility right now um, until the day when Jesus returns. And that we want to continue to serve God um, because of the gospel reality and the gospel reality that we have been declared not guilty. 
Um, and then we want to serve God. And how do we serve God? We just look at what, what God's law has to say, but we don't see it as a law that condemns us anymore, but as a law that, you know, is, is joyful, that God has set me free to run in the path of his commands. Okay. Any other follow-up? <laughs> yeah. I think that that, for the most part, um, is is where you know these questions on the backside uh, or on, on the screen um, they usually touch on at least one of those ideas if not if not two or more but we'll look at those um at least those last two uh, evaluate what do you think sticks and stones can break my bones but words can never hurt me <laughs> Only if I let them. Yeah, only yeah. if I let them. <laughs> but words can be very cutting. In you can heal from a broken bone, but there, you can be cut by words that that internal oh yeah wound never heals. Never heals. So, yes, I'd say that they can hurt. Definitely, yeah. We 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 used to say that on the playground as a kid, but I don't know if we believed it even then. <laughs> Like well, I, that was usually when you were ready to burst out in tears yeah. and just fall apart because yeah. someone was making your life uh -huh. so miserable. I know, and it was the yeah. only thing you could say to make them think they weren't bothering you, but yeah. they were bothering you. <laughs> totally, completely. Yeah, and uh, the bottom one, um, this one's kind of interesting, I guess. Um, Buddhism is all about meditation to eliminate desire uh what do you think evaluate we christians should incorporate that principle into our christian living hmm. well i desire to go to heaven so <laughs> it's kind of a yeah <laughs> i mean uh, what do you, I mean, that requires the term desire be defined. Yes. And mm -hmm. yes, I should desire less earthly things and more heavenly things. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. I need to focus on mm -hmm. what's truly important. So yeah. in that sense, I'd say yes, but, but that doesn't mean to give up desire altogether. It just means to shift my priorities. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is, um, is how do you define meditation? Yeah. Like in, in Buddhism, you're basically trying to clear your own mind. Your mind yeah. And that's, um, that's a no go. Yeah. And, and I think the other, the other thing there is that Buddhism um, really downplays the, the physical, downplays the, the body. And you want, you want to attain some higher, higher plane of consciousness is kind of their, their goal. Um, and for the Christian, that's, that's not really the, the end goal. Like, you know, our goal, for instance, is to go to heaven. Um, the end goal is to live in heaven forever with a resurrected body, <laughs> the same body that you, that each of us has right now. Um, that the Christian, in the Christian worldview, we don't separate the physical and the spiritual, but we rejoice, you know, the holidays of the, of the Christian church, the two biggest holidays are, um, are Christmas and Easter. And what is Christmas, but, you know, a celebration that God who is eternally spirit has become human. And then what is Easter, but um, that was the, you know, the, the three days in the tomb was the briefest period of the only period of time from the incarnation through all eternity. It was the only period of time when the son of God was not word and flesh. That he was, he was only spirit, you know, soul, um, but not in the flesh. Um, and so Easter is that other, that other holiday where we celebrate that the God who became incarnate is, is now word and flesh completely again, and he will, he's not going back. Um, and so Buddhism is really this idea to, um, to rid myself of my body and, and all physical desires, 
Um, whereas Christianity is the truth that God has chosen to purify our bodies. Um, and it's, it's only in part and it's, you know, can be a, a progressive, you know, sometimes we make progress and sometimes we fall backward, um, in that, that sanctification. Um, but that God's goal is to, to purify our bodies that we may live together with him in heaven, body and soul. So it's um you know really <laughs> upside down. And I don't think you want to meditate to clear your mind. You want your mind to focus on God. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and the the idea of um, meditation, especially in um in the Eastern religions, you know, like when when the Beatles went to go see uh, Hare Krishna or whoever that was, and they started chanting it in their in their songs, mm -hmm. like I. I had a lot of Beatles exposure when I was a kid. I guess you guys did, you folks did too. <laughs> yeah, it was different. And now I'm like, what in the world? This is ridiculous, you know? Um, and their whole idea is like to, to make my mind empty. And the, the believer, the, the Christian's idea of meditation is I have this, this tangible thing to think about. Um, you know, I've got the word of God to, to meditate on, like Psalm 1. Um, blessed is the man who does not walk in the step of the wicked, but his <laughs> he meditates on the on the law of the Lord and day and night. Like, wow, it is um, on the surface it looks very spiritual, um, but when you start thinking about it, it is it is completely different. Again, you've got to define spiritual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Their definition of spiritual and ours is worlds apart. If it's mm -hmm. in the right hand and the left hand. Yes. Yes, I love that. Yeah, I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I was listening. To you. Oh, yeah, listen to you no, no, no. You stitched it together very well, uh, and, and that's kind of like um, when somebody says, "Well, I'm spiritual, but not religious," which has that's been a thing for like probably 15 years or so, and um, and what they mean is, well, I wanna, I wanna say, you know, I wanna get the bonus points for saying that I am spiritual of some sort, but I don't want anybody to tell me what to do or what not to do. So what does that mean? Well, you're not really religious and you're nothing spiritually good. Yikes. Um, anything else? This is kind of a, a grab bag of questions on, uh, um, related to Christian decision-making. Standing before the throne of God, it's like, all right, you're at you're at the gate, and Peter's there with his book, you know, that cartoon. <laughs> yeah. And you realize your best efforts at thankful living and your best good works are tainted with sin. What will you do? Say thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we get to heaven, are we really going to be thinking about our sin? No, no, you're not. That's, it's that, you know. <laughs> Like that soul and body separate. You're standing right there, and and that's it. There is there's there's no more regret. No more like oh, I wish I could go back because I have unfinished business. You know, like all the ghost hunting <laughs> shows. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yeah exactly. It's like well, thank you. And um, I changed my mind. I don't want to. I want to come back alive now. Yeah yeah. That's the one that they have on a lot at Christmas time. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. The angel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's a way. <laughs> or um, one of the you know, there's a, there's a couple like classic sermons in American Christianity, um, or sermons that are at least you know very well said. Um, like there's if you look them up on YouTube, um, there's that one of like a Southern Baptist preacher talk, and the theme is like Sunday's coming, um, and it, it is just fantastic in a way that i wouldn't be able to replicate um but he, he's like you know they they betrayed my savior but sunday's coming they put him on trial but sunday's coming they crucified him they buried him but sunday is coming and it's like the way that he if you look it up on youtube it's fantastic um 
like Sermon Sunday is coming. And the other one that, that kind of comes to mind, I'm sure that there are a number of others, like probably from Billy Graham or Billy Sunday or someone like that. But the other one that, you know, jumps out as recent in my own mind is, um, is the man in the middle. Um, and it's just like the closing paragraph or so of, of this sermon, you know, in like some large Coliseum or something like the LA Coliseum, some stadium. And, um, and the culminating paragraph is basically, you know, when I die and, or when the, the thief on the cross died and he was standing there at heaven and, and Peter's like, or the angel is like, you know, you did this, you did this, you did this. Uh, why are you here? <laughs> because you shouldn't be. <laughs> and, uh, and the thief on the cross says, the man in the middle said I could come. And well, the angel like, would say that would be the devil anyway, because he's the one that's accusing me. Yeah, yeah, and and the angels, I mean, they they at least um, they rejoice when it, when even one sinner repents, and so they at least you know see or have some perception of of you know the spiritual condition of a person. Um, yeah, so I, I, that would be the other one that that would you know is at least worth looking up related to this one, uh, the man in the middle uh, sermon. Um, so then that gets us into eschatology. That was the, the quickest overview of, um, of the right-hand kingdom, left-hand kingdom, Christian citizenship. And, uh, that I think I've, I've ever had. I'm glad that we're so participatory that we just let you go. <laughs> I'm like... It, it's, we know it's, this is our last class. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> we had that discussion before. We already we just did that. Okay, we did. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we'll we'll keep on trucking. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll finish on time here. Um, so introduction, why do you think there is such a fascination with end time issues among people today? I think there's always been a fascination mm -hmm. with end time. Mm -hmm. The predictions are there, and they have applied since they were written. Mm -hmm. And you can interpret anything that happens to fit how you want it to fit. Yeah. So, and I think, too, because we can see that it's got to be getting closer because things are getting worse. Mm -hmm. True that, so, but... but hundred years ago, people said the same thing. That's true. Yeah. That's I don't true. mean to contradict you, but no, I, I understand what I'm saying. What you're is, saying. It yeah. depends on your perception. Yeah, that's certainly. True. It seems like yeah. it, it's what we terrible. think is bad. They thought was bad at that time. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, you, you even see that reflected in um, architecture. Like um, in the period of time up until in, in the 800s and 900s, up until the year 1000, um, there seems to have been this idea that Jesus would return at the year 1000, um, around the year 1000 years after he had ascended. And the year 1000 came and went, and, um, and the Christians were like, oh, maybe, maybe when, you know, he said 1000 years, that's that's not exactly literal and we shouldn't take it literally and it's after after the year 1000 that um the great cathedrals of europe were were built and made um and they would take you know 200 300 years to build some of these in such a massive way that kind of just draws your eye upward and say oh wait yeah i am i am waiting for something more than this um and i think it it is a testament to the influence of of Jesus Christ on history, that that at least in the Western Western world, um, there's an understanding of what Jesus has said, and at least was some understanding of um, of biblical teaching that you could refer to some of these things, like you know there will be wars and rumors of wars, and you say that, and somebody's like, yeah, I, I know who you're talking about, I know what you're talking about. Um, and then out of that grows this, you know, the, it's still that strange mixture uh, within the left-hand kingdom where people who, you know, even unbelievers who are in government want to try to use spiritual terms for their own political gain. Um, and, and they would say things like, oh, maybe, maybe he's the Antichrist. Or they pick up on some of these terminologies that we that we see, especially especially in the book of Revelation, because it's it's scary. And then people are like, "Oh, where is the Antichrist?" And some of those things. 
Well, there's a few we could name. Yeah. yeah. The rest of the year, yeah, we might get to all of them. But off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah, there are many uh, small A antichrists and uh, one big A antichrist. Um, and I would separate that out from like the anti-Christian forces um, in this world. Um, yeah, so then we're going to talk about death. Uh, the big thing here is that death equals separation. Um, that's the, the most simple and straightforward way. And um, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, let's keep that in context that he's talking about the gift as given through holy baptism. Um, but the three kinds of death that come as a result of sin is obviously, uh, or maybe not obviously, spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. And so spiritual death is um, the way that each of us comes into this world uh, spiritually dead, unable to make any movement toward God and resisting every movement that God makes toward us. Um, that we weren't born to be neutral, that we were born spiritually dead and enemies of God, which is a little crazy because there's nothing else like that. Um, physical death is the, oh, so rewind. So spiritual death, if death is separation, then spiritual death is separation from God. Um, you know, that you do not have any fellowship with God, that you don't know any goodness from God, um, aside from what you see with your eyes. Um, but that is of no spiritual benefit to you. Then physical death is a physical separation where body and soul separate from each other. Um, and then the soul goes to stand before God in judgment, and we are left to uh, manage the body here. Um, we talked about that with the catechism kids last week and a little bit this week because our account was um, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so we talked about, you know, funerals and cremation and, um, and a lot of those things as well. Uh, so physical death, um, basically what each of us more or less tries to avoid each day by, you know, feeding our bodies and wearing our seatbelts. <laughs> um, and then finally, eternal death is eternal separation from, from God. Uh, more precisely, eternal separation from God's loving presence our eternal separation from the experience of God's loving presence. Um, because God is present in hell, but he is present there only with, with, his, um, with his judgment, with his justice, with his wrath, and not in a way where the people in hell can experience his love and his grace. Um, and the fact that it is eternal means that it goes on forever without, without any ending and without any diminishing. Um, so, for instance, apparently the sun is going to burn out in, I don't know, a billion years or six billion years or 1.2 trillion years. I don't know how they do the math on that. Um, the same way they do the math on how old the earth is. Yeah, yeah well, how exactly. old the earth is. The same science of the, the weathermen, um, the meteorologists, <laughs> right? Um, and But hell isn't like that. Like, hell isn't going to burn out and, and the fires will just finally, you know, puff out after, after a billion years. Um, Eternal means eternal. Um, in addition to being consequence of sin, it was actually a measure of God's grace to introduce death into the human existence. Um, that's kind of an issue, interesting one. I think we could tighten that up a little bit if we wanted to agree with it, that, that God prevented Adam and Eve from living forever in a world of sin. That he said, you know, kick you out of the garden, going to put an angel and a flaming sword there so that you can't go back to the tree and eat from it and live forever. Um, and so death is the, the consequence of sin. It is not natural. It is the least natural thing in the world. Um, and the, where we see a measure of God's grace was that he prevented them from living forever in a world of sin and death and pain. Are you torn on death? The gift is better than wages. <laughs> and, and I think this is another place where um, the rest of that little, little part that you see on the screen, this is another place where we see that, you know, are you torn on death and question mark, and then the gift is better than the wages, where we see that God works, brings his greatest glory in humility. He conceals his greatest glory under humility and weakness. Um, and where death from every human perception looks like a loss looks like failure looks like the end 
Um, it looks and it, it is heart wrenching and feels terrible. Um, that is absolutely the, the truth. But in his grace, God tells us that he has chosen to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, and he conceals his glory in that he uses the death of a Christian to bring that person to heaven. Um, and he conceals his glory under humility in that we have his certain word, his clear word, that he will raise this body from the dead, just as Jesus raised himself from the dead. Um, and so, you know, the wages of sin is death, death, but the gift of God is eternal life in, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, that if death is celebration or is separation, and that's the result of sin, then the the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, then that is like forever non-separation. <laughs> Body and soul are rejoined together. So you have your physical life is restored uh, for all eternity. Um, you have spiritual life where you have fellowship with God. Um, and then it's also in an eternal and ongoing undying way where it goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, and so, you know, you think of the hymn, that from his goodness our lord will restore all that he takes away or something like that be still my soul that's where it's from and um i forget the exact line but that is that is absolutely true that um that god allows death and he uses death for for his own purposes that death is at the same time still um a god's judgment on sin and in that sense death is always painful because it is a proclamation of the law that even if this person is 106 years old in seven months and 14 days or maybe it was only 13. <coughs> and, you know the first funeral i had the lady was 106 years old <coughs> excuse me um that even if a person lives a very long time from our perception um that that time still comes to an end and yet in his goodness and in his grace god has um chosen to upend death and broken the the he's taken the sting out of death which means you know the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law that the resurrection of jesus is a comfort to us because not just that jesus undoes death but that he has fulfilled god's law and that he has suffered the sting the punishment for God's law. So in that one sentence in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. Paul connects the resurrection of Jesus um, with your resurrection, with the fulfillment, you know, Jesus fulfilling the, the law of God in our place and saying that there is nothing more to be afraid of because the law doesn't condemn you anymore. <laughs> Um, and so that's where, you know, Resurrection Lutheran Church, you know, um, when we did a little bit of rebranding, which was, you know, a couple of years ago, where Kristen Failing designed a new logo for us. And, um, and it's like our, the tagline that we have, you know, Resurrection, you know, where the life of Jesus meets yours, um, that talking about and defining what, what does resurrection mean, you know, not just congregation, but the word um that that it is a it isn't a deficient you know resurrection um but that the life of jesus is meets yours here at resurrection and so our logo is like the, the outline of our church with the the stone rolling away um and that the life of jesus now meets yours in word and sacrament even today um because jesus brings resurrection of you know physical spiritual and and eternal uh, next one, heaven. Yeah, right on track. Uh, from what you know about the Garden of Eden and what you know about heaven, list at least three similarities. Uh, three, boy. Um, but God, God was there. Yeah, God is there. That, that's a good one. God is there. Um, God has fellowship with his people. Um, there's also the tree of life is pictured as being in heaven. <clears throat> as well as um as the river of life 
flowing down from the the throne of God and of the Lamb. Um, and in that symbolism in the in Revelation, you know, Revelation twenty two, um, I I think it would be perfectly fitting to say that the the river of life is the the Holy Spirit, you know, proceeding from the Father and the Son, or at least the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that that is how God has chosen to give life. Um, and a lot of the imagery that we have, like from Isaiah of heaven, is of the restoration of the relationship among animals, um, where the lion will lie down with the lamb and the child will play near the cobra's nest or the viper's nest, where there's there's no more there's no death. Um, and there's a you know, rest, creation restored, I guess. Um, the comforts you gain from Jesus' words, that's, um, <laughs> I talked about the, that a lot this last Sunday, in my father's house for many rooms, if it were not so I would have told you. And, um, and the comfort there isn't just that heaven is a big place, big enough for all of us, um, but that Jesus is drawing on the fact that he has legally committed himself to us um, through his own resurrection or through your baptism, same thing. Um, he has legally committed himself to you so that in God's court, you have been declared not guilty. And he has promised to come back and take you to be with him, that you also may be where he is. Um, and so in John 14, Jesus is drawing from their, um, their wedding rite and their wedding dialogue. Um, but he's also attaching a greater meaning to it that, that the spiritual reality is that you and I will be brought to heaven to be with him forever um we'll skip the next one then talking about hell uh in the middle of the heaven chapter from from revelation 21 there's a verse on hell maybe i'll put that up on the screen here revelation 21 verse uh verse 28 and the question of why is there a verse on hell in revelation 21 and I would say also that that is what um, the Old Testament ends with. Um, the book of Malachi concludes with um, concludes with an image of Judgment Day, and the image of Judgment Day in the last chapter of Malachi is of um, on that day. Basically, the believers are released like cows from the stall when they first get out there in springtime. And, um, and they will trample the wicked under their feet, and the wicked will be ashes under their feet. And it's like, whoa, amen. <laughs> you know, we'll look at that uh, ever so briefly. Um, and so, you know, Revelation 21 talking about um, the one who is, says to me, it is done, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. And outside, verse 8, are the cowardly, unbelieving, detestable murderers, adulterers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all of the liars who will have their share in the lake of burning, burning with fire and sulfur, sulfur, which is the second death. Um, and so I think, you know, at least part of the reason why uh, this is included here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, um, is, is just putting a little bit more uh, imagery on the fact that God has, he now enjoys restored fellowship with his people. And you can't really have fellowship together with, with God if, unless you also have the exclusion of those who are not in fellowship with God. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, you're going to be part of the heavenly, heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And God's like, oh, by the way, there won't be any muggers there. You're not going to have your house broken into. You won't have to be afraid to walk in the nighttime because, first of all, there won't be any night. But then, second of all, there won't be any anyone to fear. Um, and so the, the imagery is that all all things that that cause dissension and that cause pain or suffering, those are outside and they are far away and they are not going to hurt you any longer or ever again. Um, and I guess together with that, when we're talking about when we're talking about hell, um, it also also reminds us that it is probable, I would say probable, that um, that those in heaven will be able to see those in hell, um, where you know you think of the rich man and poor Lazarus, um, which I don't term a parable because Jesus doesn't call it a parable. 
um, but we'll just leave it in that fuzzy middle ground as a story. Um, that the story wasn't wasn't told in order to give us to help us draw a map, a roadmap, or a landscape map of eternity. Um, but the story was told for the particular purpose of um, encouraging people today to listen to the law and the prophets, listen to the word of God. Uh, yeah. But wasn't uh, that that parable? The rich man was looking into heaven, mm -hmm. but you didn't see Lazarus reply to him. It was uh, Abraham. Abraham, yeah. <laughs> yep. So he interceded for this guy. So you don't know whether you can actually look back and see your relatives or whoever, you know. Mm -hmm. because, yeah. You know, they say it's, it's going to be no sadness or anything. Mm -hmm. You look back and you see somebody you really thought the world of. And here, you know, you wouldn't be able to. Uh... Yeah. And that's where, you know, the perception of this idea is is challenging uh for us right now um where you know you think of i can't imagine um i can't imagine enjoying heaven and you know person a or b or c is not there with me and you know how much worse that it would be if i am in heaven and then i can see that person a or b or c is in hell like that just sounds like uh yeah you know, bringing awful. yeah sounds awful um and and part of that, I mean, is is twofold or maybe three. Uh, part of that is the reluctance to. Well, I guess where where do we go from there? Um, when we are in heaven, we'll start with this one. When we are in heaven, there will be no there will be no sense of regret. Um, that there will be no sense of missing out. There will be nothing to diminish your experience of heaven. And because when we are in heaven, here's point two, that. We will have a clear and perfect understanding of God's judgment and, and as well as God's grace. Um, that there isn't going to be any wondering, um, you know, what's going on in this world? Where's the justice in this world? But we're going to have a, a clear and perfect understanding of God's judgment and God's grace um, to us as well. And, um, and then I guess in verse, in the third part then is um, it's not going to diminish our experience of heaven we will have a full and unrestrained appreciation for God's judgment, as well as a full and unrestrained appreciation for God's grace. Um, but then the third part is that, you know, distinction of, of law and gospel, that we don't want to, you know, when, when we're talking about hell or we're thinking about hell, it's, um, you know, it's an uncomfortable topic sometimes. <laughs> and, and we don't want to think of God's judgment as, as that severe. Um, and and that's that's a challenging thing for us to think about or to or to feel that you know i don't want person a b or c to spend eternity in, in hell and i can't even think that i would be able to see them and and still enjoy my time in heaven um but that what what i i think what that really comes down to is um is almost a mixing of of law and gospel that that we don't want to import eternity into into today or project today into eternity, um, but that we we see God's judgment on on sin and sinners as first you know something that I have earned and I have deserved, but that God in His grace has um, has redeemed me, and so it's it's easier i think at least this is the way that i think of it it is easier to think that i'm not going to like it if i can see hell from heaven um but to look that truth in the eye and say i will be able to see hell from heaven it's not going to affect me it's not going to hurt me it's not going to hurt my feelings but that means that i know what's coming and i have a responsibility to those people person a b or c today that as long as God gives them the time of grace, um, the time of their lives today, then I, I have a responsibility. I have a debt of love to this person to, um, to, to at least speak to them so that they aren't, aren't caught unawares. And, and I think that's where that, that discussion um, sometimes goes um, in that we would, we would rather, we kind of get caught up 
with that stum or stumbling over the idea of people in heaven and hell being able to see each other, but having completely different eternal experiences. And we get caught up on that idea rather than saying, we know that. So what does that mean for us today? And it's the same, it's the same, it's the same vein of thinking as um, when God says that he visited, visits the sin of the children or sin of the fathers unto the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. What he was saying with that isn't just, um, you know, the Israelites were like, you know, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And so what they were saying was God's punishing us for the sin of our fathers, um, <laughs> that we didn't do anything wrong. But when God said that the sin of the fathers is visited on the children to the third and fourth generation, he says that as a strong statement of the law to, to fathers today, that they would take their responsibilities seriously and, and you know, speak up even when it is unpersonally uncomfortable because they know it has long lasting ramifications, not only for children, grandchildren and, and great grandchildren. Um, and I think in, in a similar way, if we understand that statement as a warning to fathers today, then we can also understand, um, you know, the images of the afterlife of, of heaven and hell and being able to see one another, perhaps, um, as also a warning to believers today that this is what God describes. And if that makes us uncomfortable, then then that should really say, well, let's do something. Let's do what we can while we can. Um, let's say, you know, I know this is a difficult topic because topics are awkward. You know, I want to talk about heaven and hell and I'd love to sit and can we just get like 10 minutes because I care about you and I want nothing but the best for you. And, and you can, I, I won't bring it up again if you don't want me to, but can you give me 10 minutes, nine minutes of your time? Because I know this is coming. Um, it, it's kind of like, you know, and how how that conversation looks or what it looks like is um, is going to be different for each person. Um, but I think you know when we look at hell and what hell is looking, what hell looks like, um, that gives us you know all the more greater understanding and appreciation for the free gift of heaven that Jesus has won for us. And um, care for our neighbor means that we want to see them there in heaven too. Um, like this, this would be like three YouTube references in, in one class period. Um, the, I think it's a Las Vegas magic show group, Penn and Teller, um, and, you know, ardent atheists, I think both of them, but, um, you know, willing to talk with people and, uh, and Penn, I think whichever one had like the long, dark hair. Um, he, he talked about a time when he's doing the, this show and then after the show a man was you know waiting to shake his hand and meet him and you know clutching his bible and um and the man just said you know what i i know you're an atheist i know you don't want to believe this but i want you to have this this is my personal bible and i've marked one page in here and and even if you think it's a bunch of hokum and you, you toss it in the garbage before you go home tonight i want you to have this because i know what is coming after this life and I don't want to, I can't just walk out of here and, and not let you know and do something about that. And um, in this, this YouTube clip, Penn or Teller or whichever one it was, he's like, you know what? I, I'm still an atheist. Um, and I, I treated that book with respect and I treated him with respect. And I said, you know, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Um, and he just kind of ended with this concluding thought that, you know, that was a good man because he believes that I'm going to unending torment and he cared about me enough to speak up even when it was personally uncomfortable. And then he turned it around to, um, to a statement of, of, of guilt and law, which was, isn't where I would go with that statement or that story. Um, but I, I try to, I would go to, well, to think of the, the treasure of, um, you know, the riches of the forgiveness of sins and life forever, um, that that is something that, that we share. And God gives us the ability to kind of pick our place with people. Um, and to, but then to, to have that 
and to know what's coming and say, you know what, but that is, that's really uncomfortable to talk about. It is, <laughs> but to know that, um, you know, that Jesus has paid the price that, that we can enjoy heaven with him forever. That's, um, that's pretty fantastic. Um, let's see that last one. <clears throat> um, I think we've covered, we've covered the content, uh, most of those. Um, if hell is the, the prison, who is the warden? Uh, Matthew 10, 28, that's, um, do not fear those who can kill body and can do no more. Rather, fear the one who can throw you both body and soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Um, and the NIV, and I, probably the EHV, does the same thing, or it capitalizes the word one, fear the one, capital O, one. Um, because it's saying that, that Satan isn't the warden of hell. If hell is a prison, Satan is not the warden. He's just the most notorious inmate. The warden of hell is God himself. And, um, and God, yes, he has revealed his grace and localized his grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has revealed that to us in his word. Um, but he is still um, the one who is in charge of hell and exacting his um, eternal punishment on those in hell. So it's, I mean, for instance, it is true that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Um, but those two things together don't tell the whole story because hell is filled not with sins, but with sinners. That God hates sin, God hates the sinner, and yet at the same time, God chose to carry our sin so that sinners would be declared righteous. Um, but it is people who uh, will spend their eternity in hell. Finally, Judgment Day and Millennialism. I'll take Millennialism first. Um, this is not talking about people who were born to baby boomers. <laughs> that joke was more funny a few years ago, but uh, millennials are now turning 40 and, um, and all the midlife reflection that kind of comes along with that. So millennialism um, is the idea of a 1,000 year reign of Christ. Um, and so you know, a millimeter is one thousandth of a, of a meter. Uh, for instance, a millipede, you know, apparently has a thousand legs, not really, but that's what they say. Um, milla meaning thousand often used to indicate a, a complete unit. Um, so 10 is usually a number of completeness and you know, that something is complete. Um, and also things in groups of threes. So if you want to, the most complete unit is 10 times 10 times 10. That's, that's the number 10, but three times. Um, and so it's often used in the Bible to, in, to indicate completeness. And so when we talk about the thousand year reign of Christ, um, you know, Revelation 20 is the only place where, where millennialism could be read into scripture, but they would take, <laughs> in, in Revelation 20, it talks about the chaining of Satan. We saw this angel coming down out of heaven with the chain for the great dragon that is Satan. And, um, and so they'll take the chain as a metaphorical picture. It's just a picture. It's not a literal gigantic chain to chain the devil. Um, but they'll say, well, that, that's metaphorical. It's spiritual. But then in the very next sentence, when it talks about the, the thousand year reign of Christ, well, it must mean a literal thousand years. Um, and so. Well, is it? Because. Yeah. Here, here's the reason I'm asking that. Mm -hmm. It says in the Bible that uh, a year to God is like a thousand years to us. So you take a year to God mm -hmm. times a thousand <laughs> yeah. times a thousand. Yeah, that seems like forever. And, and I think, and I think the, um, in second Peter, when he, when he says that he's that a year is like a thousand day or days, like a thousand years is, um, in the context that God is being slow in coming for judgment day that, you know, where is this coming that he has promised? And, and Peter says two things. Well, first of all, God doesn't experience, um, time in the same way that we do. So from our experience, it's been a long time. And from God's perspective, it hasn't. Um, and then Peter goes on to say, but don't you know that in the days of Noah, everybody was just going on drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then, and then the judgment came and there was no recourse. Um, 
and so when he when he says a day is like a thousand years um what he's really referring to at least in context there is that um that god is not slow in coming with his judgment mm-hmm. um just that from our perspective it is totally outside of of our lifetime and but we don't use that to try to <laughs> that that isn't you know a straightforward interpretive passage for all the all the times you know like some people will use that to try to reframe or rephrase uh the seven days of creation well you know day is like a thousand years so how can we know that creation was a little 24-hour period of time and i'd be like well in genesis 1 he says there's morning and there's evening in the first day <laughs> you know context usually solves the problem so the idea uh well, you, yeah you still have the the saints mm-hmm saying in revelation how much longer how much longer longer? yeah Yeah. and so the saints in heaven um there seems to be some experience of the passage of time um even though they don't know you know when exactly you know the the son doesn't know the day the angels in heaven do not know the day but only the father knows jesus said that during his state of humiliation where he chose to not know the day of the day of judgment even though you know he knew he chose to again know that after his resurrection um and so you know their their understanding of time time is a creation is created by god and so they are they are in timelessness um is is the big idea there but there's got to be time in heaven they sing they do there 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 is a passing there is a passing of what we call time, um, but their experience of time is not going to be the same as we have it here, is uh, most of the imagery that you have in Revelation. So when you talk about millennialism, um, there are a bajillion different variations on millennialism. If you want the um, in our library, the People's Bible Teaching series, most of the books are about this thick and they are fantastic. Um, Pastor Nass's father, Professor Nass, wrote the one on end times, and it's like two or three times as thick as every other book because there's a lot to talk about. And um, But the idea of the millennial, the thousand-year reign of Christ, it's one of two things, usually, either pre-millennialism or post-millennialism. Pre-millennialism is that Jesus comes pre the millennium. He comes, he returns before the millennium. So he returns, he sets up a visible kingdom, and then he rules for 1,000 years. Um, and then the end of the world. And then the end of the world. But yeah, that can't be true, though. You are correct. Because if, if Jesus came back, then you would start the stopwatch, and we've got a thousand years. A thousand years, years you know exactly <laughs> yeah. when the end of the world is, and it says nobody will know the end of the world. Exactly. And the other idea of uh, post-millennialism, I think this one is less popular, but I'm not sure because I despise millennialism, and I don't talk to many millennialists about the topic. I usually talk about something else because there's major, there's major problems with it. Um, post-millennialism says that Jesus comes post the millennium. So he comes after the millennium. So there's this thousand-year reign of Christ after Satan, and then toward the end of that there is Satan's short season or little season. And then Jesus reveals that he has been in charge for this thousand-year period of time. Um, and then the judgment is going to happen then. Um, and it's it, it's a swamp. And I, I, I can find a chart for you for next week at our thanksgiving eve service if you want if you want to look at a simplified chart on millennialism but the the problems with millennialism is um number one it provides a different path to salvation um where there is there are varying ideas on will all the jews be saved will all israel be saved it's a misunderstanding of romans 9 and 10 um, but they say, and, and 11, and they say that all Israel will be saved. And they're like, oh, all the Jews got a free ticket to heaven. And so they have an express ticket to heaven because of their ancestry. So it's a different way of salvation. Um, number two, the biggest, you know, and that, that's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem with, revel- with millennialism, whether pre or post, is that it, it uses a misunderstanding of revelation 20 to reframe every old testament prophecy 
So it reframes all these Old Testament prophecies into applying to Christians today when they don't. And when it was like God talking to them and then God talking about um, talking about the Christian church. And this is this will bring us full circle and then this will be wrapping us up for tonight. Um, it reframes the Old Testament prophecies and takes out the idea that God conceals his glory under humility. And it's and it puts in that if the idea that if God is at work, then it must be powerful. And so it tries to it reframes all these Old Testament prophecies and tries to fit them into this millennial framework um, so that there is no sense of suffering so that there is no sense of weakness of God's church. And and we can just rejoice in this theology of glory that the church now goes from success to success. And then finally, I guess that that's the, the second big one is that it reframes all those Old Testament prophecies. Now, the third part is that it introduces all sorts of doubts and worries and concerns where it doesn't need to be. You just um, cut the Gordian knot and say the thousand year reign of Christ is a symbolic period of time that encompasses the entire time from his ascension to his second coming. It is the time of the New Testament church. And um, and it is, you know, if you do the, the math, it's um, also the time that is three and a half years in the, the old in the book of Revelation says three and a half years. That's roughly a thousand days um, referring to the period of the New Testament church. Seven years referring to the period of God's interaction with all humans, um, Old Testament church, three and a half years, New Testament church, three and a half years, all of which are under the umbrella of the reign of Jesus, but specifically this thousand year reign of Christ talking about the time of the New Testament church, um, where God promises that he, he has restrained the devil that he has won uh, salvation for all people and that um, that he will return at the end of this and judgment day it just simplifies the entire thing <laughs> so there's no hand wringing like oh no who's the antichrist going to be and and what are the signs that we should watch for and are, are all the planes going to fall out of the sky on y2k because um because there's been a rapture like oh my heart <laughs> And, and it's like you can lampoon it and, and we laugh about it because it's ridiculous. But then it's like, wait a minute, there, there are sincere Christians who believe this and get all wrapped up in this. And um, oh, yeah, there's, well, yeah. Yeah. Book series that there's yeah, the Left Behind, Left Behind series. series. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But all their clothes and everything were still there, but they were just gone. And that may happen, who knows? Yeah. But it won't. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, Judgment Day. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Probably leave our clothes here. We'll get new new clothes, and God's gonna burn up and reshape the earth. So your um, your your fleecy quarter zip or whatever is uh, gonna be part of the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, well, not if the sun burns yeah. out, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not worried about the sun burning out either. <laughs> I'm not particularly worried about yeah. When you're buried, you 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 die. Your body turns into nothing, or you're cremated, and your body turns into nothing, and you have no clothes. So <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yep. I'm sorry, but you don't. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I, I'm not saying we won't be clothed in heaven, but we'll be clothed in garments of white. Yes. Yes. And That's fantastic. Yeah. So it, <laughs> yeah, your clothes may just stay here. I don't know. <laughs> But I have a feeling the whole earth is just going to go kaboom. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's kind of like that joke, you know. How do you how do you know who is Adam and Eve in heaven? Well, they're the ones without belly buttons. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that is that is going to wrap us up. We covered nearly everything, um, aside from Judgment Day. I think I nearly every every funeral I preach um, has First Thessalonians four in its um, among its readings.